Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Vermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today are my colleagues at UVA Law, Quinn Curtis and Mitu Gulati, along with Mark Wiedemeyer, a law professor at UNC Chapel Hill. All three are experts in the law and regulation of financial markets, and Me Too and Mark host the Clauses and Controversies podcast on that subject. Today, we'll be discussing ESG investing and their new paper, Green Bonds, Empty Promises. Hi, Quinn, Mark, and Me Too. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having us. So um, you have a new paper together that you've put out recently, Green Bonds, Empty Promises is the name, um, and it's critical of certain types of ESG, environmental social governance finance. Um, one of the nice things about this paper is that you really get into the nitty gritty. You actually look at the legal documents um, underlying uh, some of these instruments to figure out what they do and do not say. Um, and I want to get into the results of your research, but maybe we can just start with some basics about green bonds and the bond market more generally. So uh, first off, we're talking about we're talking about debt here. So me too, in this context, who is borrowing from who? So there is a wide range of institutions who are borrowing, and they're borrowing largely from the investing public. You might think that green bonds are instruments where issuers are borrowing from the subset in the world of tree huggers, let's say. Uh, But that's not quite the case. These are garden variety investment instruments that big financial institutions around the world are purchasing uh, primarily uh, because of the financial returns that they provide, although this is something that would that we could discuss. But the world of green bonds, uh, to contrast it, is very different from, say, uh, the kind of, say, a war bond that a country at war might Uh, raise capital from uh, its population to support a war of the type the U.S. uh, issued lots of bonds during World War II or World War I uh, that were advertised as ways of protecting the country. The green bond market, to my mind, and Quinn and Mark might have different views, is, is, is a different kind of market in that it all sorts of investors of the typical investing type are purchasing these. Got it. So we've got, so those are our buyers. And who's the, who's the seller here? Me too. So the sellers run the gambit. Uh, they are corporates. They are muni, muni issuers. Uh, so our local Virginia institutions, uh, they are sovereigns, so countries find these bonds very popular, uh, uh, and they are supranationals, which are institutions like uh, the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank. So it, everybody's in on this party of issuing green bonds or more broadly ESG bonds to supposedly help uh, 
improve the environment. Okay, great. Okay, so it's a pretty robust market. We've got lots of buyers, like a lot of, presumably a lot of institutional buyers, um, pension funds and the like, um, but others as well. And then it sounds like pretty much anybody who issues bonds, corporations, municipalities, sovereigns, you know, countries um, are in the game. So um, again, just to provide some context, legally, right, a bond, you know, these instruments that we're talking about are fundamentally about promises, right? The borrower promises to repay the loan with interest. Um, so Mark, what other kinds of promises, promises do borrowers make in like a typical bond? Let's set aside the green bond, um, context and just in a regular bond, like what, what else is in there other than just the promise to repay and, um, and what kinds of things happen if, if um, the issuer doesn't deliver on the promise? So here it depends really on who the issuing entity is. The, the promises vary to some extent depending on who's issued the bonds. But it, across all contexts, all of these promises reflect the underlying problem the investor has, which is once the investor gives the money, there's really nothing to do for the investor but to sit around and worry uh, that you're not going to be repaid. So basically, the promises fall into two buckets. There's a, a bucket of promises. And again, this um, the nature of these promises varies across corporates and sovereigns and so forth. But there's a bucket of promises that are sort of designed to maintain the investor's ranking relative to other creditors or to uh, provide the investor with some informational rights or to limit opportunistic kinds of behavior by the borrowing entity. And then the, the second bucket, so, so those are sort of investor protective kinds of promises to, to uh, limit the need to worry while you're sitting there waiting to get paid. And then the second bucket is sort of the enforcement bucket. What happens if um, uh, maybe the sovereign starts to um, lose its creditworthiness, if it starts to behave in ways that suggest opportunism, and you know that those from the kind of simplistic perspective involve um, a, a set of rights that are not necessarily promises, but the investor has the right often to accelerate the loan to get their money back uh, uh, to demand it to be paid immediately, and then a set of promises that relate to enforcement. So uh, promises to submit to the jurisdiction of particular courts in the sovereign context to waive sovereign immunity and so forth, so that the investor, uh, in the event they don't get paid, has some legal recourse. That's what one would expect in um, a, a bond, pretty much regardless of the issuer. Got it. Great. So these are kind of the garden variety things um, that make sense in a economic context. Um, borrowers want um, assurances and, and um, or sorry, the lenders want assurances and the borrowers are kind of willing to make these promises in order to get access to this capital. Um, okay. So let's, let's uh, now with, with those kind of moving parts on the table, um, there's the, the green side of all of this, the ESG, environmental, social governance side. So, um, so Quinn, maybe you could just give us a quick snapshot of the state of ESG investing generally. I, mean, I know it's a really big domain, um, but what are we talking about when we talk about ESG investing? And then how do green bonds fit into that, um, or that overall picture? Sure. So, um, 
ESG investing is a little bit hard to characterize because there's not a lot of agreement on what ESG means. Uh, but the starting point is that it stands for environmental, social, and governance issues. Um, and over the last several years, the idea that you need to consider the environmental impact of your business operations, the social impact of your business operations, um, and corporate governance issues as part of how you invest one way or another, whether that means which securities you choose to purchase or how you're going to vote your proxy if you're a stockholder. Um, lots of major, major investors have um, at least publicly subscribed to the notion that we need to be considering ESG as part of how we manage our portfolios. We've seen a rise of mutual funds that specialize uh, in ESG investing, that they, say, exclude oil companies from their portfolios, or they seek out uh, companies that um, have particularly strong environmental records. There's an entire ecosystem uh, around a, a metaphorical ecosystem around evaluating the um, ESG exposure of various companies. And this has become uh, big business and probably the most discussed aspect uh, of investing in academia and, and in uh, the business world, too, the notion of how are we going to incorporate these considerations uh, into investing. And, and what I think is important for uh, our paper is to sort of contrast how that plays out when we're talking about stocks, equities, uh, and the bond market. And so uh, if we're talking about stocks, right, I, I might think that it's just a good idea to invest in companies that are ahead of the curve on adapting to the impacts of climate change, whatever I think that means, that um, they're investing in making their operations uh, more energy efficient, uh, that they've located their facilities in areas that are going to be uh, not vulnerable to sea level change or extreme weather events. And I think the market's sort of missing this, and I'm going to invest in companies that are doing that. And that's just the right way to invest. That's sort of an ESG investment thesis. And I might think if I buy stock in those kind of companies, that that stock's going to beat the market and I'll do well. And not only will I do well financially, but maybe by by steering my capital that way, I'm putting a thumb on the scale for companies to sort of be more pro-social uh, and to um, reduce uh, carbon emissions and so on. In the bond market, it plays out a little bit differently, right? So if I'm buying stock, the stock value is going to adjust to incorporate all this information about how firms are behaving. Uh, but as Mark said, if, if, if I buy a bond, I'm going to get paid back or not. Um, and what I'm going to get paid back is contractually set on the day I purchase it. So I may well think that um, buying the bonds of a green company is a good idea because that company is going to perform better and maybe I'll be more likely to be paid back. But that doesn't necessarily make green bonds, bonds that incorporate a uh, specific green project, uh, more attractive because the ordinary bonds of a green company and the green bonds of a green, of that same company are either going to get paid back or not. Um, and so I might be an ESG uh, investor who thinks that ESG is important as a financial consideration, 
But even that's not necessarily going to make me think that green bonds are somehow a more valuable instrument. There's got to be something else going on that makes uh, those bonds attractive. And that, that was kind of the mystery, I think. Like, like, what is it about promising to finance a specific project that makes these bonds in some sense attractive to investors? Great. Yes, and it is. It's a really interesting question uh, as you as you set it up. <clears throat> just to just to reiterate, kind of the point that you just articulated, there's there's a big difference between. I mean, there's many differences, but uh, there's a um, couple particularly relevant differences between investing in equity, buying shares of a company. Um, you can't really buy shares of a sovereign, of course, um, or a municipality, but at least in the corporate world, you can buy shares of companies, publicly traded companies. Those same companies can issue bonds. Those are debts, right? So you don't get to vote <laughs> yeah. at the shareholder meeting and um, you get paid back a fixed rate of return, as you, as you noted, um, rather than getting a piece of the profits going forward. And they can be for specific projects. So, you know, company ABC can say issue bonds for, I don't know, a factory or something like that, or to make some kind of specific investment um, rather than just issuing bonds in the company in general, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of characteristic of these green bonds that they are associated with a particular project uh, to... Um, develop a lead to, to build a lead certified transit hub. If I'm a municipality, for example, and I'm using the word associated sort of advisedly because I think um, the, the the what we found is that these bonds, though they are associated with that project, aren't making strong legally enforceable pro- promises to actually use the proceeds for that project. Right, great. So that gives us a preview of the findings. So the so yeah, there's an association <laughs> in some sense between, uh, but the the bonds. Well, actually, that's that's an interesting question. So um, in general, are 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 corporate bonds or bonds that sovereigns issue typically associated with a specific project, or are they just general like we're ABC Corporation, we're issuing bonds? Presumably, there's some of that, uh, but is there also um, and then, you know, a sovereign could do that. Argentina or whatever could say, we're just issuing bonds in general. Um, but then there's also project-specific bonds. So I'm just wondering how, pre- again, putting aside the green stuff for a moment, um, is, is, it, is it a common thing to issue debt uh, that's kind of tied to particular projects? It's, it's quite unusual, at least in the research that, I've done, much of it is with Mark on sovereign issuances and quasi-sovereign issuances like a state-owned company. Usually, there will be a use of proceeds section, which I've always thought of as some kind of historical artifact because uh, in the early 18th late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, these, these were used a lot. And I'll, I'll give you a sense of when, why they were used then. And, uh, but today, usually they just say, the use of proceeds sections will say, uh, these are bonds whose revenues will be used for general purposes. And so if you just looked at a bond today, you'd wonder, well, why the hell do they even have this section? But in the old days, say, take a railroad bond from the late 1800s when lots of these kinds of instruments uh, were 
issued, you would specify where the money is going in part because the promise to pay you was from the revenues of the railroad. And so these were, in a sense, collateralized instruments or you, you had a promise to pay from a particular uh, revenue source. So that stream of payments was tied to your being repaid. And so you cared a lot about where your money was going. But we, d we don't, for whatever reason, we rarely do that today, except maybe, you know, some kind of toll road financing or something like that. So specifying in a general bond of the type Quinn described, uh, where your money will be used is, uh, I've never seen it in a general bond. Uh, other than this new creature, the green bond. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And then in a, again, just it's, it's maybe worthwhile separating out the green bond from kind of normal uh, market transactions or typical market transactions. So then, you know, if you did want to, you were talking about general bonds. If you did want to issue debt um, that wasn't exactly collateralized, but it was kind of associated with a specific project, um, in private markets, put aside the sovereign for a moment, we can do that through, and we're getting, to, this is in my area, but there's things like special purpose vehicles and other um, forms that one might take in order to accomplish that goal. Is, is that broadly right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. So you and I have talked, uh, Mike, in the past about sort of investments by the Nature Conservancy in, say, a particular country where they're giving, they're loaning money uh, for a particular project, and then they have all sorts of bells and whistles to make sure that the right kind of environmental impact uh, occurs. Now, that sort of uh, project, or you could imagine a development finance project where USAID is providing financing or some institutional institution like that. Those kinds of projects are very tailored to the particular goals in question, and they're expensive to set up. But you're, you have a high degree of assurance that the project will actually happen and the money will be used for the purposes that... Uh, you want it to be used. And the criticism of those projects is that just too many administrative costs, usually. Uh, these, these things are very different in that the money's just given and then you say a prayer and hope it's used. But it's, it's a far cry from the type of targeted financing that, uh, particularly in the developing world, we were used to. So, okay, good. So, um, so there is a way um, uh, to structure uh, the, you know, financings um, where they are oriented towards specific projects. And that's kind of one category of, you know, say bonds or debt transactions. And then, but there's another category that you all are interested in that you're studying. So, so how do you define the, the object of inquiry of the, of the paper? So if we're going to, I take it that we're actually excluding me too, like the kind of projects that you just described, right? The kind of project specific financings, maybe where there's a, spe a special purpose vehicle or there's some kind of really special one-off element to it. And that the world that we're describing is 
yeah, maybe like, what is it exactly? How do we define the um, the circle here of of what counts as a as a green bond the way the way you guys define it? Mark, maybe you could take a crack at that. So, um, the the initial cut of data included the kinds of project financing bonds that you're talking about. So we we started with a um, sort of a big cut of of bonds flagged with the green label over the last decade. But we wound up, uh, after excluding the project finance-related uh, related bonds that we had included in that initial cut, we wound up focusing on what are often called the use of proceeds bonds. And, and so we're using green bond loosely to refer to what uh, people in the field would frequently call a use of proceeds bond. And so here, basically, the the difference from a regular bond is simply that there's a, or, or at least one would expect there to be a promise restricting the sovereign's use of proceeds to projects that meet certain predefined uh, criteria, often called eligible projects, but the shorthand um, a way of thinking about them is just that the issuer is supposedly promising to do green stuff. So the those bonds are structured in different ways. Sometimes the uh, issuer tells the investor the, that it will use the actual proceeds of the bond issuance for certain purposes. Sometimes it just promises to devote an equivalent amount of money equivalent to the proceeds to to these eligible projects. But the core of the trade is that the investor gives the money and gets some assurance that the money is going to be devoted to environmentally beneficial projects. Okay, great. So, so this is this is quite helpful to me, <laughs> anyway, in understanding the the domain that we're talking about. So there, so we have in 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 this world, uh, kind of project finance style bonds that may or may not be green. They could actually be very non green, right? I don't. We shouldn't be heard to to be arguing that all project finance is green, but there could be right. Um, uh, uh, bonds that are associated with some specific project like a hydrogen um, production facility that relies on solar power, right? So the idea is so they're making green hydrogen and they're going to get financing and, and, it's, and it's a company and there's a specific um, financing associated with that. Okay. That's different. What we're talking about here is a more general bond that's issued by a sovereign or a company or whatever that um, isn't just for, well, and this is the the hard. This is the tricky question. So legally, what's going on here is it the the bond is not associated with a particular project, but there's a section in the bond <laughs> that says that that we might call the, the the use of proceeds section. There's some language in the bond that says we're gonna use these proceeds for green things, um, and that's and that's the language. So is there? Do you, do you happen to have any an example, or that you kind of come up with off the top of your head of a of, of, of the types of language that you would see in one of these use approach proceeds, like what would they say? They wouldn't say green things, obviously. They would say uh, something a little bit more specific. Well, so now we're starting to get into both the details, but also the problems. And so uh, basically what they say is that the issuer, uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, 
skip over some of the complexities here. Let's assume the issuer wants to make an actual promise. So then the language says the issuer will devote uh, an amount equivalent to the loan proceeds to eligible projects eligible projects, the defined term. And then typically that's defined with reference to some uh, set of green principles, often called a green bond framework or something of that nature, that the issuer has promulgated and that has a long list of definitions and descriptions of what types of projects fall uh, into that list of eligible projects. And, and uh, one of the issues that we encounter is that those definitions are so broad uh, and so vague that virtually any kind of project could be justified as um, satisfying the issuer's obligation. So um, uh, just as a, a, a sort of broad example, anything designed to improve Energy efficiency, for example, might be the the one of the categories, and you know there's um, a, a query whether it's possible to tell whether any given project actually satisfies that criteria. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, so it's, it's 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 very interesting, right? Because you get into the nitty gritty, and there's all these kind of details about how these things work. So. Um, so, so say in the example, right, so then kind of it says, all right, we're going to use, in the use of proceeds sections, so we're going to use this for eligible project projects, that's defined elsewhere, an eligible project, there's a long list of definitions. Presumably some of those are, are fairly green sounding, but then there's others that are more open-ended. So whose job is it to evaluate these things? So look at it and say, okay, this is green. <laughs> okay, this is, you know, oh, this doesn't look very green. Um you know, is it the, up to the individual buyer, or like who's who who's in the who's in the um, yeah whose job is it to to figure out whether this gets to be called green or not? Quinn, maybe you could give us an answer to that. Yeah, so there's a couple ways that that can be done. So uh, some of these bonds are going to be certified. Um, so there are some third party organizations. Uh, the Climate Bonds Initiative is one. There are also um, some companies like Standard of Poor's that construct indices, where inclusion in the index is a representation that the bond is a green bond. And so they would sort of evaluate uh, the greenness of the proposed commitments made by the bond as a third party. Um, so those Third parties themselves uh, aren't often the ones, like CBI doesn't actually go out and verify the specific project. There's actually another set of verifiers that the uh, bond issuer uh, might contract with to assess the proposed project that's being undertaken, decide uh, whether it meets uh, certain standards for inclusion uh, as a certified green bond. And then some of them are just sort of asserted by the issuer to be for green purposes. Um, and they're not going to be subject to that kind of verification. Um, and then in that case, I suppose it's up to the investor to decide uh, whether they think that the um, 
project or potential projects associated with that offering are sufficiently uh, green to meet their goals as an investor, whatever those might be. Hmm. Okay, this is very interesting. So then, all right, now we're going to get into your, <laughs> these are kind of in preliminaries, um, but I, now we can kind of dig into the study that you guys actually did. So, but this directly kind of um, follows from Quinn's um, response there. So how did you guys decide what was and was not green? Was it, you know, presumably it was anything that was counted by these third-party um, certifiers? Was it just anything that included kind of green stuff, like green marketing materials and the marketing materials? Like what counted as a green bomb when you surveyed this world? And then, you know, we'll talk about the nitty gritty, but like what, how, what was in, what was out when you, um, when you compiled your sample? So this is a crucial question, uh, and the world provided us with a nice, neat answer. So uh, as Quinn had described, there are lots and lots of institutions, pretty much every major financial institution, uh, that buys these instruments. Okay, may, maybe it, exceptions for the state of Florida and the state of Texas and a couple of others that are barred from buying these institutions now, these um, instruments now. But because there is so much demand in the market, there are nicely defined categorizations of green bonds. And so issuers of all these green bonds will specify my bond is green. They'll, they'll, you know, maybe it'll have like a little green color, maybe a, some pretty trees on the front page, uh, but they will be then categorized by the databases that we would look at. So if you look on Bloomberg or filings expert or one, one of the other major databases and you want to, uh, by green bonds, you there's something you can click on that will give you a listing of all the green bonds. And then you can see all the prices. And so for our paper, what we did was to look at the stuff that was officially categorized as green and then looked at the kinds of promises that were made in this officially categorized uh, set of instruments. Got it. Now, as you said, Mike, there could be other bonds that are out there. Let, let's say there's a bond issued by some Native American tribe that's all about protecting the environment, but they didn't, they didn't put a label on it that says we're really green and we're protecting the environment. My sense is that would not be categorized as green. And in fact, nobody would buy it uh, because of its green stuff, because then you don't get credit for having invested in green stuff. Uh, maybe I'm being too cynical and Quinn will correct me, but that, this is how we set up the project. We, we looked at this. We didn't categorize it. They were officially categorized. And by officially, this is officially in like the Bloomberg. Um, yeah, in market terms. I mean, we used a database called Filings Expert, which has not just uh, the, you know, not just the legal and financial terms, but also has the categorization 
that industry people use, but uh, almost every financial database, because this is such a big market and because the categorization is important, uh, will will tell you which new bonds have been issued that are green or blue or yellow or whatever. And whether green. Just so that I, uh, I can, um, this is so, so interesting because it really gets to the heart of the, of the project and the heart of this market. So is this like, I can just click a little box if I'm the issuer and say I'm green or like in order to become officially green in the sense, you know, the, in this database that will show up as green, like I am in control of that. So like our Native American tribe, they could click green on the little box or the, this is the, um, the database themselves, like look at the marketing material, like who actually makes this decision about whether the little box is clicked next to green in this database? So my impression is that uh, for the da- most of the databases, they just let the issuer uh, designate, which is why, and Mark and I have done some work on Native American bond issues. We've always been puzzled because if you read their materials, they're super green, uh, but they don't categorize themselves. And so the market doesn't give them any credit for this. Uh, but the databases might categorize you as green and not green. But then there are also other institutions like um, the Climate Bonds Initiative or rating agencies that might then say you are super green or, you know, you're just uh, light green or dark green. or uh, There are institutions that then give you more fine-tuned categorizations uh, of this of, of your degree of greenness. I don't know, Quinn or Mark wants to correct me uh, on, on this. Uh, please do. Well, not hearing not hearing any corrections. It's, it sounds like we're we're going to let that one stand. So then, okay. So we've got our databases, um, and then there are kind of the higher level certifications that some of these other entities offer. It sounds like, generally speaking, the um, for purposes of the databases, the um, um, the issuers are the ones that get to choose whether they're car- categorized as green or not. Um, okay. So then. Maybe one more step before we get into the results. Why does it matter whether this box is checked in this database? Like, why would anybody check or not check this box? Um, uh, Me too. You mentioned that maybe there are some states that actually limit your ability to inv- invest if the if the box is checked. So, like, why is this a consequential thing? And maybe Quinn, you could give us an answer to this. Uh, why is this a consequential thing? Whether whether in this database. A, a, um, an instrument is marked as green or not? So there are kind of two possibilities uh, there. Uh, one is uh, there's a notion um, that bonds that are identified as green might carry a lower interest rate, um, which is to say that's attractive if I'm an issuer of the bond, if I'm borrowing the money, because I'll pay less interest. And so that that's referred to as the greenium, uh, a, a green premium uh, for bonds. But its existence is kind of controversial. Um, we kind of bracket the issue. It's really hard to pair up bonds that are absolutely identical except for the green aspects and determine their exact price difference. The finance people ha- have looked long and hard at that. Um, and the consensus seems to be 
to the extent it exists, it's very small, something like 0.06%, six basis points. Um, so it's not nothing, but it's, it's close to nothing. Um, and so one possibility, the one we kind of discount, is, hey, maybe you're getting a better interest rate. And this would be due to demand, right? That people demand these things. They demand green. They like green. And so they're yes. willing to essentially pay a little bit more in order to get the green bond. Maybe if I'm an investor who's not not just sort of attracted to green as a financial play, but, but believes strongly in it um, as a matter of social value, I will accept a lower interest rate in order to support your green project. Um but that's a little intention with the idea that there's big financial players who are major movers in this market. We don't expect them to be the ones to take uh, a discount on their investments. Uh, but what's unequivocally clear is that there is huge demand just in terms of the size of the market for these bonds. Uh, that doesn't necessarily translate into much of a greenium, but what we hear again and again, and I think we see in the market, is that if you can identify as bond a bond as green, you're going to tap a larger and more liquid uh, market to place those bonds, and you're going to have more confidence those bonds are going to place, and your investors are going to have more confidence that there's going to be an aftermarket for those bonds. Um, and so this is very much a phenomenon that's driven by the investor side. We have an appetite for these kinds of instruments as investors. Please give them to us. Uh, and that seems to be one of the key drivers of the green bonds market. Yeah, so this was this was something that was in the paper, this distinction between the green premium or the greenium. I have to admit, I'm not a humongous fan of that portmanteau. <laughs> but um, uh, but so the idea of the green premium, i.e. investors are willing to pay more for these um, uh, if it's if you have the green label. And then the idea is, uh, if it exists, it's very small. We don't really see much of that. But on the other hand, there's this liquidity reason, right? It's like, oh, you can then sell it to way more people, and way more people want to buy it, and um, therefore, you know, that's that you have more, you know, kind of confidence in the instrument going forward. In secondary markets, all the stuff that you said, but. I'm having a very hard time separating out those two yes, things yes. in my mind because if <laughs> I have a thing. It would be very strange if it was like, I have this thing and if I improve it a little bit, a lot more people are going to be want, want to buy it, but no one's going to be willing to pay anymore for it. Yeah. That just strikes me like a, like a contradiction. Yeah. And I mean, it, 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 as an economist, creates a little bit of tension for me too. Um, but one underlying detail here is, you know, a lot of these investors... Um, have some incentive to show their clients, hey, look, we're we're um, involved in ESG. We're taking it seriously. We're bringing green assets into our portfolio. Clients want to see that, um, but clients also want to see returns, right? Like, there's no doubt about that. And the extent to which clients are going to accept actual lower returns might be extremely limited, which would, I think, explain a, a small greenium. The other thing is a lot of these investors are going to be under binding fiduciary duties not to explicitly trade off returns for their beneficiaries in order to get um, some social benefit, right? That any ERISA plan is going to uh, be bound by more or less that 
fiduciary duty. Are, just for the listeners, these are pension-related plans. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yes, the uh, pension funds, mutual funds would all be very uncomfortable if the greenium got to be very substantial. And so um, it, it's possible that there's precisely this dynamic, that, that there's a lot of demand in the sense that investors would prefer that asset managers show this type of green exposure, but both from a legal perspective and the other aspect of investor, investor demand perspective, the returns aspect, their ability to sacrifice a material amount of money to get that is, is going to be very limited. That's very interesting. I almost want to say that the word demand <laughs> is the wrong word there if you're not willing to pay anything for it, but um, but yeah, so in any case, let's, we can, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, it, there's clearly uh, something, uh, a, a desire of some kind to, um, to put these, these green labeled things into your portfolio, um, even if you're not willing to pay much for it. Okay. Now, uh, at some level, we've just been kind of setting things up and setting the stage and explaining the stakes. Um, but now maybe we can get into your findings. So, so Mark, maybe you could give us a little uh, intro here. You, you went out, you actually identified a sample of these green bonds. You read the damn things. Um, you know, these are the things that were labeled green in the, um, in the database that uh, firms seem to have some kind of desire to put into their portfolio to show the uh, that they're adhering to their ESG commitments. And what does it turn out that these, actual, these bonds actually look like? So it turns out that they look like vanilla, regular, ordinary bonds. So remember that the difference between a green bond, a use of proceeds bond, and just a regular bond issued for general corporate purposes purports to be that the issuer is restricting its policy flexibility. It's got to use um, funds equal to the proceeds or the proceeds themselves to fund one of a series of eligible projects. And so when, if that's the nature of a green bond, we would expect to see a commitment to actually use proceeds for those purposes. And then some mechanism by which investors could enforce that commitment. And the the shortest way to describe our findings is that we see neither of those. Uh, green bonds typically involve a representation that the issuer at the time of the bond issuance intends to spend money on green stuff, but no promise whatsoever to do that. So the issuer is perfectly free to change its mind and to spend the money uh, on a new coal-fired power plant, and uh, bondholders would have no basis whatsoever for objecting if it did that, certainly no legal basis. Uh, and um, even if by some quirk of magic or luck, uh, a bondholder was able to point to some kind of actual commitment language, really restricting the issuer's uh, use of proceeds, there's no mechanism for enforcing that. Uh, Typically, uh, if the issuer violates a covenant, the investor can accelerate the loan and exit the transaction. Uh, the investor might be able to sue. None of those rights are triggered by the issuer's failure to use proceeds for green purposes. And what we, what we find, too, is that this is all perfectly clear in the documents, and in fact, it's become clearer and clearer over time, so that a green bond basically says, now hey, look, we think we're probably going to do some green stuff with your money, but just to be clear, we have no obligation to do that whatsoever. And if we 
don't do it. If we change our mind, you have no rights whatsoever against us. I, I think I'd like to impose my summary that this is just a big, fat, giant scam. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was, I was gonna ask you actually, but uh, what, what your what your quick take was? A, a scam implies lying, and one thing that seems clear is that at least to the the sophisticated investors who are buying these, there are there are no lies. There's just a a label, and nothing underneath the label. But it's quite clear that there's nothing underneath the label. Sorry, I'll shut up now. Yeah, no, no, that's interesting. And if it, in, in, and one of the things that you, um, one of the bits of research that you did for this project is to talk to some investors and some folks who buy these things, some folks who structure these things, the, the lawyers who write the documents. Um, and yeah, me too. What, what was their take? Were they like, yeah, this is a big scam or um, were they deluded about what was actually going on? What was the situation when you actually talked to the folks engaged in this market? So... Again, you know, the three of us talk to lots of people together and you know from doing this kind of interview research, you know, different people read different things and I, I'm, I'm such a deep cynic that uh, I came away from the interviews and we did over 50 interviews and since the project we've talked to more people. Uh, my view of what they were saying was, yeah, you guys think it's a scam based on uh, the legal language, and you're asking us for, oh, is the legal language going to improve? Is this is this the way it is just because the market is starting out this way? And they said, come on, this is really just PR. So don't expect it to improve. And right now, uh, there's a whole bunch of people in the market. So these are the people I see as being scammed. People like me who want their pension funds to invest in green stuff because I want to feel good in the at my home that I'm I'm doing something for the environment. They say, you know, they all these people want this to happen. So investment managers have to go out and find green stuff but they don't want lower returns and companies have to produce stuff that will satisfy the investment managers uh, because they know that somebody cares about it. And so that's why we have this market. But, you know, it might just be a temporary thing, might expand even further, but it isn't based on anything real. I mean, one of the, one of the things that really drove me up the wall in terms of myself being scammed by these is where folks in companies or countries would would say, look, uh, and this was a way of reassuring my dismay. They would say, look, we, we had this cool green project. We had signed up uh, with the Paris Accord to do all this stuff. And so we were doing it anyway. And then the investment bank said, well, why don't we do a green bond and say you're doing all this good stuff and so we can raise some money. But but that dismayed me because I thought the green bond is promising to do extra green stuff, not just you getting credit for stuff that you were doing because of Paris. I mean, that's interesting. Although for me, to be honest, that raises a different set of questions because that's the additionality question, which is, which shows up actually in lots of different 
context and environmental law? How do you structure incentives so that people, you know, are changing their behavior? And that can be quite difficult, but it sounds like there's something even deeper here, which is just, they can do whatever they want with the money. They can just build, go build coal-fired power plants if they want. And that strikes me as even more serious um, problem than, uh, uh, than the additionality one, which is serious, no doubt, but... Um, but is a little um, kind of more complicated to solve. Whereas if you have legitimate promises that say, look, we're going to use this to build solar or we're going to use this to improve wetlands and carbon sequestration, that seems like if there are real promises, um, at least plausibly um, valuable. And what, what do you think, Quinn? Is this, I mean, is this a big scam? Is it, is it just PR? Is it greenwashing? That's a word that gets used. Um, who, who, who benefits, who loses from this um, current state of affairs? I, you know, it's, I, it's strange. It, it's like, I, I even resist the greenwashing uh, label um, because there are dynamics in this market that, that I don't even think quite square up with the idea of greenwashing. And to be clear, I'm probably the, the least cynical among the three of us. It's kind of been... Uh, my role in the project, but I'm looking at uh, a bond that is from a, a U.S. realty company, $425 million uh, financing. Uh, it's a green bond, and the promise is they're going to use the proceeds of that bond to uh, construct buildings that uh, meet uh, lead environmental certification standards. And it comes with a letter from a third-party verifier that lays out uh, the way that they're going to uh, check the plans of the buildings and the HVAC of the buildings, all these details about uh, how they're going to ensure that the buildings meet the LEED certification standards. This feeds back into uh, certification for the bond as a green bond. They meet those standards. Uh, and then sure enough, you get to the bottom of, of all this, and there's a disclaimer that none of this is legally enforceable. Hmm. Uh, it's not actually part of the agreement. And so it's not, you know, greenwashing is is, is a thin veneer of, of green. It's a relabeling, right? This has a infrastructure around it that has some reality to it, but it's not the reality that I think a bond purchaser would, or at least a sort of retailer, us coming into this, asking what it's about. The expectation would be that um, this ought to have some legal enforceability to it. Right until you read that paragraph of text at the bottom, that's where you assume this is all headed. Um, and so... To me, there's something even deeper than just greenwashing. It's a, it's a very strange market. It's like a conventional bond with this overlay that, you know, why does it even need to be part of the bond market documents? That That's what I get hung up on. Why does this green aspects, right? If, if this same real estate company said, hey, we're committed to building LEED certified buildings and we're going to build this many thousand square feet uh, over the next 10 years, you should lend us money. Here's our conventional bond, right? And I'm an investor committed to seeing those buildings get built. I might want to buy that conventional bond. Um, but somehow slapping and, and it wouldn't. I'd understand that that's not legally enforceable. That it's just a, you know an aspirational promise they're putting on their website, but they put it in the bond document, right? And that's what I'm troubled by. Um, 
because I can't think of any reason to put this purely aspirational stuff in the bonded document other than to create the impression for someone somewhere uh, that it's a part of the promise that that is represented by the bond. And, and it's really not. That's, that's interesting. Um, and maybe, maybe this is worth thinking about for a second. It's like, why is in the... So as lawyers, <laughs> there's a bunch of lawyers talking to each other, we would assume that the reason you would put um, language in a debt instrument, which is a contract of, of a particular kind, is that you want to make a promise. You don't put your PR marketing materials into your contracts, right? That would be weird. Look at your insurance contract. It's not like State Farm puts a bunch of like stuff about how State Farm is awesome in the actual contract that you sign, right? That's in their marketing materials. Um, and that is very strange. Although one of the um, peculiarities of this that we've been kind of unpacking a little bit earlier is like this little box that gets checked in the uh, in the uh, um, in the database. And it sounds like if you don't put something in the bond itself, right? Even if you kind of intend to use the the the, the funds for particular purposes, or you're just a very green kind of institution. Um, it does the box doesn't get checked. Is that so is that what it is? It's just a matter of like, if you've put the marketing material in the bond, then you get the, the check box. But if you don't put the marketing material in the bond, then if it's just on your website, then you don't get the check box. Like Quinn, is that what's going on? That's surely true, right? If this were just a plain vanilla bond for a company that was sincerely committed to building LEED certified buildings, it's not going to be a green bond and it's not going to accrue whatever advantages uh, this real estate company feels it gets by issuing green bonds. Hmm. That's very interesting. So, so this just puts us in a, in a, in a, in a peculiar position. So, so maybe let's just imagine if we're being, um, generous that, um, you, there is a difference. There's, there's firms that they genuinely want to agree. They genuinely, they don't want to agree to anything. They genuinely want to engage in some investment in things that are green, but they don't want to be bound by a, formal, legally enforceable promise, but they want to communicate to the market their genuine intent to spend um, money in particular ways. Um, and part of the reason they want to communicate this is because there are market actors who, again, kind of in the same vein, want to fund entities that genuinely want to engage in uh, uh, funding green activities, but actually the investors don't want binding enforceable promises because that can cause all kinds of costs, like situations change. Once you are bound by these promises, um, you know, you're really bound by them. And an investor could come in who doesn't care one lick about green things. And maybe the investor, or sorry, the, the, the borrower needs, you know, to make some moves in order to, to, to um, deal with different marketing conditions. And a sharp practice investor could buy up some bonds and threaten to, you know, bring the, um, you know, bring some kind of lawsuit against the the, mm -hmm. the borrower and then extract some wealth from them. So, I mean, is that part of the story here is that we're worried about sharp practice by kind of like hedge funds or something or, um, yeah. So, so, so in any case, you can imagine that the market wants to operate on this kind of intention, but not legally enforceable promise basis. Um, and the peculiarity is that it's happening at the level of actual bonds rather than just in marketing materials. But that's just like a weird artifact of like how this stuff gets tracked in financial databases. I mean, is that, could that possibly be the story or is it, does it, is it necessarily, 
Is that too rosy of a picture? I, I, it strikes me as a, a little bit rosy for the following reason, right? So you could imagine that this real estate company is concerned. Like, suppose I put in my bond document that um, you'll be able to accelerate the debt if I don't build the lead certified building. And then, you know, the building's 90% finished and the lead certification requirements change a little bit in some way that's relatively trivial, but I realize I, I'm committed. I'm not going to be able to get the certification that I thought I was going to be able to get anymore. And as you say, maybe some investor comes in, uh, just a pure like interest rate place, swoops in, gets some of the bonds, and sues me and accelerates the debt. And all of a sudden, I'm in a terrible position, not because I breached anything that would be important to an environmentalist, but because I've set myself up for an opportunistic investor, and I want to avoid that. That kind of worry surely goes into the decision, how much do I want to legally commit to this? But in a market where my counterparty, the purchaser, wants to see legal enforceability, you would expect some sort of negotiated set of terms. I mean, you know, it's a bond, so it's not going to literally be the buyer and seller sitting across the table. Um, but the terms we see in the bonds are, are, are one-sided, right? That It's just we're not going to make a, a legal promise at all. And that doesn't strike me as an outcome from a process where we have sincerely concerned purchases of the bond who want to see some credibility and um, sincerely motivated sellers of the bond who are willing to give some credibility but are worried about opportunistic behavior, right? What we see is these bonds taking legal enforceability entirely off the table. And that, I think, just it, it's not going to be explained just by the risk of opportunism, though I imagine that's a part of it. Okay, good. Yeah, this makes this, I mean, that, that makes sense to me. And there is the the problem of the, you know, the end, the end purchaser in some sense, right? Is the person who, um, Someone is demanding of some of some other entity, typically that that entity puts, you know, has has achieved some kind of ESG commitment, and and so you know that that's the worry is that the the me too's of the world who <laughs> want to invest in good things, things that they think will make the world a better place, will um, will end up with a bunch of bonds in their portfolio that aren't actually accomplishing what they think they would accomplish. Um, so, okay, so we have just a few minutes left now that we understand the problem. What is the, what is the way to, to, to address this? You guys talk about upgrading certifications, more disclosure. Do we, can the market sort this out? Do we just need to let people know that the green bonds are kind of not worth, the, the greenness isn't worth anything right now. And then presumably people would look to these higher quality certification um, entities like to, do we need government regulation? Um, what do you think? Maybe we could start with Mark and we'll, and we'll go through and, and, and this will probably be where we wrap up. I mean, I think there are kind of two directions that one can go. The direction that you're, you're suggesting, which is uh, either making certifications more robust or maybe building legal enforceability uh, in some sense into these bonds, I think will have the effect of making this something like an affinity bond market, which to my mind is um, contrary to the reasons why almost everybody wants these things to exist. Uh, a, a set of enforceable commitments to genuinely do real stuff so that the diehard committed investors like Me Too will be all in. That, to my mind, is almost by definition a smaller market where bonds are actually not 
liquid. They're quite illiquid, among other reasons, because they're no longer fungible. They can't be viewed by um, less motivated investors as essentially equivalent to the issuer's regular bonds. So that's, that's one direction, though. One can view these as sort of affinity bonds, and one can build in some enforceability uh, into them. The other uh, alternative, frankly, is um, just to kill the market. It's not clear to me that there would be much of an effect. Uh, issuers can uh, brand themselves as green every bit as much as they attempt to do now. The um, people who care about supporting issuers who appear to have commitments to do green stuff can easily identify green issuers and and invest in in those uh, in those entities. And we eliminate the risk that. Uh, at least some investors wind up being duped by um, by the label. So I think they're they're. So, so just to be clear, that would mean like making it illegal to to uh, uh, claim to be green, or what I, is that actually? What do you mean? No, to kill I, so market? I don't I don't envision this as a as a actual regulatory intervention. But one of the things the now we frequently hear from the the folks in the market that we interviewed is that the market will die if you try to build legal enforceability into these instruments. And I, I, my reaction, I, I suspect Quinn Amito's reaction too, has been in part like, "Well, who cares if if the market can only survive if these." promises are effectively meaningless, then it's not clear why um, we need the market to exist at all. The, if, as far as I can tell, issuers are able to finance their green projects. Uh, and, um, you know, if the market simply got wise and did away with these green labels, then it's not clear to me anybody would be uh, worse off as a result. Uh, Quinn, what do you think? I mean, it- there's what I think is some low-hanging fruit to at least try to improve this market because there's so much infrastructure around certification and verification and third parties who uh, are involved in sorting um, these bonds. And you know, to go back to this realty company bond, that this is a bond whose certification is based on its commitment to uh, have someone come out and verify the energy efficiency of these buildings. Yet, oddly, this certification document, which runs about 50 pages in, in length and sets out all the standards for what it takes to be called a certified green bond by this particular certifier, says nothing about the legal enforceability. Um, and so a strikes me as a completely reasonable place to start is to ask the certifiers to say, if you want to be a certified green bond, you have to have some measure of legal enforceability. And perhaps we have some tiers of, of what that means. It doesn't have to go straight into default. Uh, we could have some intermediate uh, consequences uh, if you fail on the green aspects of it. Uh, and then we'll see what happens, right? If some of the the folks are right, and, and that sort of modest nudge uh, causes the market to collapse, then maybe there was nothing there to begin with, and maybe as as you said, Mike, that demand isn't really demand; it's demand and scare quotes. Uh, but maybe it's robust to that, and suddenly we see that the, these bonds are become more credible. Um, 
and the market might be a little bit smaller, but a, a little bit smaller, more credible market seems like a positive change to me. Uh, the other thing that's on the horizon, right, is the SEC is looking at uh, disclosures uh, for ESG mutual funds, who are some of the purchasers, these bonds. Um, and that's the, you know, interlink between the consumers who say they care about green assets and, and the assets themselves. And to ask those funds to say, do you have any internal standards for what it means to be a green bond? Uh, what's your position on legal enforceability? Um and perhaps that could feed back into the consumer market and connect people's stated uh, desire to see some green assets uh, in their portfolios um, with a mechanism that might actually lead to some legal enforceability for those assets. So I think, you know, to the extent there's good news here, it's that there's a lot of infrastructure in place that could be turned in a useful direction. The outstanding question is sort of how sincere this demand is. Um, and so, me too. We'll, we'll you know, end with the most cynical potential take. What, what do you what do you uh, what do you think the right uh, the right way to address this um, situation is? So, if if I knew, I, you know, I, I I would have started started with that. Uh, but I, let me at least um, point in what I think is. Well. I think there are two relevant uh, directions here. One is the direction of this market. We as a group may have been disappointed with the kinds of uh, promises that are being made, the kinds of disclosures. Uh, we're, we're generally, uh, despite um, Quinn's little bit of optimism, we're generally on the pessimistic side about this. On the other hand, the reality is this market is booming. I thought it was sort of dying, but it's back and it's going gangbusters and more and more money is being spent on infrastructure. It's not going anywhere. So you are right to push us on how it's going to be made better because it's it's not dying even if we think it, it should die. Now... In terms of how you make it better, I think we need to think seriously about what's going on in these bonds that, at least from an academic point of view, should be super interesting, which is that they're not just market transactions. They are combining a market transaction with for want of a better word, almost a gift. So the green part of it is give us a gift of your money and we will not promise to do anything specific with it, but trust us because we're good guys. But then also give us your money because we'll pay you a return on it. Normally, we don't think that these things combine. You either get a charitable contribution uh, or you get a gift and then you get the that the investment, but here you have a booming market that is doing, that is combining these things that I had always thought could not and should not be effectively combined. So from that perspective, it's kind of like the stuff is happening and I didn't think it could happen. And maybe like, it's just a matter of figuring out how this works, but maybe we should take the perspective that this is just really cool and 
it, it will evolve towards uh, something better. But Mike, I, I mean, I'm very curious into as to what your perspective is because you know you know the environmental world so well, and you know institutions like the Nature Conservancy, and uh, you care deeply about making the world a better place. So, what do you come away from all of this with? Yeah, I think I'm on the uh, uh, the skeptical side. Um, I think it's uh, yeah. There's not there's not much there. There it's 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 some. It seems like some PR. Um, and to the extent that people are being fooled, that's a bad thing um, because they are. Um, you know, we don't we don't like that. It's not we don't how, how we want our markets to work. Um, and I'm fairly skeptical that anything kind of pro environmental will kind of come out of this. Um, all of this, other than I guess my my take is that uh, the kind of ESG movement generally is is helpful in that in as much as it raises general awareness about the importance of environmental issues and could lead to political change. But I ultimately think that, especially on issues like climate change, all of the action is on policy and, um, and private markets aren't going to really deliver much for us other than, again, um, helping to facilitate the cultural change that might then lead to um, a better politics around these issues. So that's, that's, that's my quick take um, uh, for, for what it's worth. Well, thank you so much for having us. This was great fun. Yeah, no, it's been great to have you all. I appreciate you taking time. It's a really interesting project. Um, I think it gives us a lot of insight into what's going on in this or not going on in this market. So thanks for the project and and thanks everyone for uh, for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.